When we last left off in Matthew chapter 27, we were talking about the power of the cross and what the cross accomplished. And we wanted to kind of iterate and reiterate, okay, that we believe that the cross was a satisfactory sacrifice for the atonement of our sins, for accomplishing the, the fixing of the brokenness that's been in this world since Genesis 3, okay? And we talked about that. Jesus as our propitiation, which is the big word for our payment for our sins that he did not commit, but willingly and graciously took on himself so that we would not suffer the wrath of God. As we sang that song, uh, in Christ alone, you know, the phrase is the wrath of God was satisfied and it was on that cross. Thankfully so, because whereas Jesus, we talked about how he didn't even take the vinegar and the hyssop. He didn't take the, the, the medicinal means to dull the pain at all. He took it all 100% of the pain, 100% of the suffering. He was beaten on two different occasions, once by the Jews, once by the Gentiles. You know, you had all this suffering he went through. He didn't dull it. He didn't avoid it. He, as the role of the lamb was, he went sacrificially to that cross, suffered for us, took it all because there is no way possible we could take even the single drop of that cup that was poured out. So we saw the power in that, but we also, and the, and the propitiation, but we also made sure we highlighted there was so much more to that than the cross. So much more to the cross than just the legal satisfaction. That's why it's really easy for us to pigeonhole, narrow view certain aspects of the gospel. And we've been really trying through this whole Matthew series to to bring out more, the, the more that is out there, the more stuff surrounding these, these things that we come across. It wasn't just for satisfying a legal code. It wasn't just for satisfying a sin debt. It wasn't just for that. It brought peace. And we talked about that peace between us and God, but also peace between us and each other. It unified People who were divided by racial barriers, who were divided by creedal barriers, all these things that we spoke of last time, it unified that. Christ in Ephesians 2, it says, he just kind of said, no more. As we're going to see with the death thing, he just kind of walked up and said, you know what? No more. We joked about that and said, you know, he would walk up to Lazarus and be like, Lazarus, you're dead. Guess what? No more. Hey, uh, widow's son, you're dead. Don't worry about it. No more. You're not dead. See, you're raging and tempests are, are raging on the sea. And hey, you know what? No more. You quit too. He just, Jesus had a habit of walking into a scene and say, you know what? You're not dead anymore. You're not sick anymore. You're not leprous anymore. You're not raging anymore. And he just fixed it. Well, he did that with any kind of divisive barriers between us and anybody else. He said, your race, no more. No more dividing thing. Your religion, no more. It's not going to divide you. Jew and Gentile, no more. It's separate, not anymore. I fixed it. I have unified together by my blood and by my sacrifice and by my cross one people throughout the world. And that should be very, very, very reassuring, comforting, and joyous for us. You can go anywhere. You can meet any people, any groups, any religions, any countries, any barriers that man will put up. You can look at them and say, aren't we thankful that Jesus Christ has completely blown this out of the water? State sovereignty doesn't mean anything in the kingdom of heaven. 
The kingdom of heaven spans around the globe. It's not touched by these man-made barriers. Now, we are really good at trying to prop up those rickety barriers again and trying to separate ourselves. And Jesus only looks and laughs at them like, seriously, you really think that this is holding anything back? You really think these little barriers that you're trying to put up are going to really stand against me? And the answer is no. So it brought us peace, brought us unity. And also was the identity marker of the early church. We talked about how in the book of Galatians and in in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know, Paul kind of makes a point of saying it's the cross. The cross is who we are. The cross identifies us. In fact, in Galatians, you know, we kind of get into this thing and you'll hear it and probably have heard it like a million times sermons about uh, another gospel, another gospel, another gospel, as you talk about in Galatians. And what we drew out of Galatians was what the key root issue was, was not the fact that they were taking the gospel and like adding a little spin to it. They were removing the cross. We talked about that. They did not want to own up to the cross. In fact, they were avoiding the cross because of the persecution that came with it. So you had this dichotomy in Galatia church where they were saying, we're getting persecuted for the cross. You're removing it and putting circumcision back in place because circumcision doesn't get you persecuted. So that's what their goal was. You had a bunch of people in there who they wanted to kind of ride the Jesus train, ride the church train because, you know, it was taking momentum and they could see within their Jewish culture that, man, that was really starting to catch things. But they didn't want to suffer persecution for Christ. They were really dedicated to Christ. They were dedicated to their own self-sufficiency. So they said, hey, let's just start putting the you know circumcision back to the front. Let's start putting the law back to the front. Let's start saying that's the thing that really makes you a Christian. Yeah, all that Jesus and Christ cross stuff is really good but it also gets us killed so let's avoid that let's go back to the law the law never got us killed for anything really so that's what we saw the cross was like this thing that paul's writing to galatia going hey guys the cross is like it there is nothing else you can try to build your relationship with god off of anything else and it's going to crumble the only thing that has established your relationship with god the father is the death of jesus christ his son on the cross that was the thing so he said if you try to remove the cross out of it you've lost your entire identity so we talked about how powerful the cross should be in our lives as well it is what defines us this is why i don't i don't usually split hairs or get too wound up about people who want to wear crosses or display crosses okay You know, we talked about when we went through our Old Testament Pentateuch series, you know, there were visual reminders that God himself commanded the Israelites, take these things, nail them on your doorposts, put them on your lentils, carry them around, wear them like blinders in front of your eyes, you know, have it as a constant visual reminder of your relationship and covenant with me. So it's important sometimes for us in the same way. We need visual reminders. And if it takes wearing a cross, having a cross on your wall, or whatever it may be, to remind you that that is your identity, then by all means, wear the biggest one you can, okay? If that's what it takes, if that's what you need, by all means, because I want you to remember where your identity is, okay? Now, as we get into the rest of chapter 27... You have where we kind of left off was in verse 46, where Jesus cried out at the ninth hour. We're now getting close to, you know, we, we had that 
period of time from about 12 to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, okay? You had everything with the Jews happened at night. You had the, and this is very loose time frame, but, you know, roll with it. Um, you had the morning time where he went and then was delivered to Pilate, which would be somewhere around 6 in the morning till about 12. You have this other stuff going on. You have the trial, you have the flogging, you have the crucifixion and the propping up. From 12 to 3, you have where darkness has covered the face of the earth, okay? And then in the ninth hour, the final time, you have Jesus cry out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Taken directly from Psalm 22, where he is quoting this anguish of his soul. Again, this is one of those last testimonies to Jesus's humanity and what is going on here. Okay. Yet even in his humanity you still see the power of God displayed through him, okay? This is what should be a good example for us. Even in all of our humanity that we cannot escape, all the suffering, all the trials, all the problems, all the issues, we also have to remember that this same power of God dwells within us, amen? So the same power as we're going to see here where it says that Jesus in verse 50, when he cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent and the graves were opened. And many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus, Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him. Among them, which was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When the even was come, or the evening was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple. He went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had carved out in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher. And departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulchre. Now, the next day that followed the day of the preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember that the, that deceiver said, While he was yet alive, after three days I will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulchre be made sure or be secured until the third day. Lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, look, he is risen from the dead. So the last error will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, you have a watch, go your way, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. Now, the power of God within Christ's humanity. Jesus is coming to the end of this cross scene. And it says, as you've probably heard a thousand times, with a loud voice, he cried out. And he gave up the ghost. Now, what's not recorded in Matthew's account is the phrase that Jesus cried out. Actually, two of them. One of them being, God, forgive them for they know not what they do. And the other being, it is finished. Okay. You can assume maybe those that's what's cried out with a loud voice. 
But it's a loud voice. And you say, well, why do you kind of bring that to the forefront? Because Jesus is showing in his humanity, in his suffering, in the weakest he's ever been in his 33 years of existence, the power of God is blowing out of him. That he is able with a loud voice, with a proclamation of intercession, really. Forgive them for they don't know what they do. And it is finished. That's the power of God. What does that t- how does that tie in with us? With the power of the cross, the power of Jesus, and the power of God. That we can be at our weakest and rely on the power of God. And we will be stronger than we could ever be by ourselves. There's not a situation that you can get into in this world that Jesus is not able to help you out of. There is not a situation in this world, no matter how beat down you possibly can be. And you may think there is just, I can't go any lower. I can't be any weaker. I can't get beat up anymore. You can still go, but the power of God is within me. The power that allowed Jesus on the cross to say, it's done. I finished it. After he had been beaten twice, bleeding out, hanging on a cross. None of us are ever going to be there. None of us are ever going to be that beat up. No matter what we go through in life, nothing will touch what he went through. He still was able to summon the power of God within him to say, guys, it's done. And he gave up the ghost. So there's not a situation you can get beat down far enough that the power of God is not there to get you right back out of it. Okay. Now. In the context of what we're looking at here, we have Jesus giving up the ghost, which is Jesus dies. You have the disciples give up on Jesus. They flee and hide. You have the Pharisees give up any credibility by bribing the guards, if they had any to begin with. And Jesus gives up on being dead, the resurrection. And then Jesus gives up the keys, which is the kingdom is established and the great commandment is given. Now, it's important, as we talked about, to notice the strength, not the weakness of Jesus, both in death and the resurrection. But I also want us, as we talked about last time and we've talked about several times, I want you to note the faithfulness of the ladies. Okay? The power of Jesus' death, when when we're talking about this subject... Obviously, Jesus' death, and that's what we kind of get at when, and Brother Charles kind of brought it up last time when we were talking about 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he, you know, makes mention of, you know, my little bit of a pet peeve of narrowing down the gospel into just the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The reason that I say that, just so everybody is clear, because it is obviously the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, is that His life living up to that point has to be included with that, okay? Just because Paul is drawing out the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15 and describing the gospel by its terms, it's because those were the key sentinel events that define the gospel. Like I said, when you look at the cross, the cross is a central piece going forward. The resurrection, a central piece going forward. But they didn't get there without his 33 years of life and everything he did and everything he commanded and everything he lived. All of that culminated and was capped off by his death, burial, and resurrection. 
But we're going to look at his death, burial, and resurrection this morning. This was the key event. This is what he had been waiting for. This is what he had purposed before the world began. This is what, this is the moment. You know, we have arrived. We talked about that last time. We have arrived at this moment. This key thing that if you were just looking back through history, we've been going thousands of years to get to this moment. We've been going since Genesis 3 to get to this moment where the seed of the woman was finally going to destroy Satan. This is the moment, okay? It's a big moment, right? It's a big moment in history. It kind of changed things just a little bit. I think we would agree. So here you see this moment come to play. Powerful powerful moment okay but again as i have said over and over again with this i want us to be careful not to miss the minutia of this moment there's a lot that is going on in the background with this number one the fact that there's faithful women who have continued to follow jesus no matter what we need to learn from the faithfulness Of these disciples who were women who followed Christ. Because all the men bugged out. Okay. They were too concerned and too scared about their own lives to stay by Jesus' side. All except John who is also, you know, kind of unceremoniously describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. You know, that's pretty good when you're writing the book. I guess you can put anything in there you want. But John is the only one that says he himself was there. Okay. Otherwise, it's these women. Who obviously they weren't too concerned about their lives. They weren't too worried about what was going to happen. They weren't too worried about the repercussions. Even though they've been following Jesus just as long as most of these men have. But where do we find the men in the coming chapters? Well, they're hiding in a house with the doors barred. Okay. I won't try to go back to the Annie get your gun or Katie bar the door reference. I got it right this time and mom's not even here to see it. But... They were barred up. They were saying, oh, no, if Jesus has been taken and been arrested, we're going to be next. Let's go bar the door. Let's hide. Let's not get out here. Women are at the cross. Women followed him in his trial. Women followed him post-death. Women took him down. Women buried him. Women sat by the sepulcher. Women went back to the sepulcher on the resurrection day. You have the faithful testimony of disciples of Jesus Christ whose lives had been changed by Jesus Christ, who stuck with Jesus Christ, and it is these fabulous, marvelous women. And we should all take lessons from them. As awesome, as brash, as much bravado, as cocky, as strong and capable as we think we are as men or anybody else. You see the faithfulness of these women who were true disciples of Jesus Christ to hang with him no matter what. So we should take note from them. That's what it looks like. When you want the example of what faithfulness to Jesus Christ, no matter what, looks like, you turn to Mary Magdalene. You turn to Mary as she's called the wife of Cleopas. Now, it's interesting. I can't give you 100% who this chick is, okay? I went and studied, like, a lot just to try to figure out who she is. I can, I still cannot. There's a possibility that this is the mother of James and John. This is the mother of, this is Zebedee's, okay, kids, uh, Zebedee being the father. There is the possibility that she's this mother of James and Joseph, whoever Joseph, I mean, there's just... There's a little bit here. And then in one, in one, in one account of this, uh, Salome is there. I mean, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of women. 
who don't get a lot of recognition, who we don't really get a lot of mentions of the rest of the Bible, whose name ain't John, ain't James, ain't Peter, ain't Paul, that were there when they weren't, okay? So just take that for what it is. Recognize that it is these women who make the testimony of faithfully following Jesus Christ. And, by the way, doing all the hard work. And, by the way, I will argue, were the first people to preach the gospel. Okay? Now, where am I getting that from? Who was it that went back and said, Jesus has been raised from the dead? Who was it? Was it Peter? No, Peter was a second comer to this thing. Mary is the one that went back and said, hey, guys, guess what? Our Savior has risen. In fact, Mary was the first one that Jesus appeared to. So when you're looking at this and looking at the story and, and you know, because, you know, people have, you know, issues with certain phrases and things. Preaching is just to proclaim. OK, there are people who are called by God to be pastor, teachers, evangelists, things like that. And we have clear criteria for that. And we know where that comes from in Timothy. And, and that's very clear. Okay. Preachers and te- or pastor teachers are called to preach or proclaim the gospel. Every single one of us is called to proclaim the gospel. Okay. Men, women, children, boys and girls, 99 Everyone is called to proclaim the gospel anywhere and everywhere. Okay. You all have been called and given the ministry of reconciliation. Okay. That is your calling. You have all been called to be ambassadors of Jesus Christ. That is your calling. Okay. That is what we are called to. That is your job. That's your responsibility. Every single person in the building, that is what you were called to. You have all been gifted by God. We know that from Ephesians. We know that from Corinthians. We know that that is the truth. That's what you're here for. That's what Mary was doing. Mary was the one who went up and proclaimed, Jesus has risen from the dead. The first person recorded in the Bible to do that. You would ask why she was so faithful. Remember that Mary was the one, Mary Magdalene was the one that it says Jesus cast out seven demons from. That's why she was so faithful. You think about the man from Decapolis, the man from Gadarene, who Jesus cast out the legion from. What was his thing? I mean, he wanted to be right there with Jesus no matter what. Let me go with you. Put me in the boat. And Jesus like, nope, your job, go back to Decapolis and preach. I didn't see an ordination ceremony in there either. Go out and preach what I have done for you. And that's exactly what he did. The areas of Decapolis, the Gentile regions there received the gospel from a man who had been changed profoundly by the power of Jesus Christ. Mary Magdalene was a woman who had been changed profoundly by the Jesus, by the power of Jesus Christ. She was at his tomb. She was at his resurrection. And she was the first one to go back and say, my savior has risen from the dead. Too much of the chagrin of the men who said, there's no way. Peter and John who said, ain't no way. In fact, more than likely, they would say, what was the Jewish and a lot of the custom of that day was, you're just a woman. Your testimony 
isn't even admissible in court. That's what makes it even more provocative and more profound that the writers of the gospel put this as a central story. Okay, Because in that culture and time, women's testimony was not admissible as reliable in a court of law. Okay, So if you were trying to write this thing to get the most people to believe you, you don't have a bunch of women as the first proclaimers of the truth of Jesus Christ. Okay, You get some really reliable, credible men and you put them to the forefront so that they can say this is what happened. Everybody go, oh, well, of course it's what happened because these men said it happened. Instead, they wrote what happened, the truth of the gospel, which actually testifies to its veracity a little bit more. See, if they were just trying to do this to kind of scheme some people into a new religion, they wouldn't have used Mary Magdalene, the woman who had seven demons and could have possibly been a prostitute at one point in her life, as your key star witness. You don't put her up there and say, listen, she's a truthful lady. Trust what she says. You get somebody else. But when you're not trying to scheme people into a religion, but rather you're just trying to proclaim the awesome power of God and the grace of God in people's lives, then you take this chick who's had seven demons taken out of her and you let her be the forefront up there when God uses her in that way. And then you say, hey, everybody, look at this. Look at the miraculous transformation in this woman's life and look how faithful she was. We've already talked about Mary just in a couple of chapters back. Different Mary. You know, I know that's like this. You know, it's very hard to keep up. But Mary, Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister. Okay, we already talked about her, how she went and broke the box of ointment and anointed Jesus at his death. And he said, this woman's testimony will be preached alongside the gospel in all of the world in perpetuity. Because this is what faithfulness looks like. This woman got it. This woman understood my death before anyone else, even the apostles, got it. Okay? That's why she was willing to anoint me for my burial when everyone else is just having a good meal with me. And in some accounts, bickering over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Now, all of that being said, we take note of these women and their faithfulness because this, these are the people who we should be emulating, okay? But there's two powerful things that were rocked here, and i got to be really on my toes, okay? Two powerful things that are rocked here. Actually, three in this entire account, but the first two are here. When Jesus cried out on the cross with a strong voice, lots of stuff started happening, okay? Again, showing the power of God. So much so that the wicked, pagan, Roman centurion is going, Guys, I don't know what we just did, but we in some trouble. Okay? We just killed the Son of God. There ain't no doubt. Okay? They had no qualms about it. Now, the Pharisees are still over here going, Oh, no, can't be. Blah, blah, blah. He's a deceiver. He's a blasphemer. You know, all this stuff. The Romans like, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know what book you're reading from, but I ain't even got the book, and I know that we just killed some guy that was pretty big. Okay? That is a sad testimony. When everybody else gets it, but you who should have gotten it first don't get it, and so much so that you're so obstinate and hard-hearted you won't get it, that is a bad testimony. That's like a lot of those proverbs that talk about how dumb it is to argue with a fool, okay? How foolish you are to argue with a fool in some cases. Because that is the epitome of foolishness. It is the epitome of foolishness, as Albert Einstein would say, to continue to do the same things over and over again, expecting different results. And it's the epitome of foolishness when 
people who have no relation to any of the things prophesied in the Old Testament or even the idea of the Son of God thing can come up and go, guys, this was the Son of God we just killed. That is a sad testimony. The power of Jesus' death was able to take that pagan unbeliever right there on the spot and go, I don't know anything about anything, but I know that this man was the Son of God. It also, as we saw at the time of his death and the crying out, we saw it said that the mountains were rent in two and shaken with a mighty earthquake. We also saw that there was the veil in the temple, that thing that we talked about when we were going through Exodus, the large, massive curtain that separated the holiest of holies from the the uh, outer portion of the temple there, that it was split from top to bottom. Now, there's again, there's some interesting things with that, okay? The fact that it was split from top to bottom, this thing was like, you know, so many feet tall, way taller than, I mean, this wasn't like a, a zipper flap on a tent, okay? Uh, it wasn't like you reached up there and, I mean, I know I'm sure, but even the tall dude, okay, they couldn't get up to it. This was a very tall thing. It was very thick. It was meant to obscure everybody from getting to the holiest of holies except the high priest on that one time, okay? So it was a massive thing. It would not be something that you could just walk up to and go, rip, and then pull it down and it's done, okay? Except if you're Jesus. And then you can do that. And that's exactly what happened. He cried out, and at this moment, the, the veil itself rent from top to bottom. And I think it's interesting that they say top to bottom because that would imply... It wasn't from bottom to top, so it wasn't a dude coming up from the bottom with a pair of scissors, okay? From top to bottom. Couldn't reach it. That's the direction it went. Top to bottom split. Down the middle, fell apart. There you go. The access way to God is now fully open and there's nothing standing between. Did I mention that Jesus broke down barriers? Did I tell you that he broke down divisions? That the thing that had separated us from God for thousands of years since Genesis 3. It's torn apart in figurative language by tearing apart this veil. The way was made open. I always go back to Hebrews and you really just need to keep reading it so you can keep up with me. But that's where, I mean, that's where it's in there. Awesome language. The way was made open by the death of Jesus Christ. And that is pictured in that tearing of the tent. The other thing is, is that It is shaking, this power has shaken this religious institution, okay? The law, the Torah, the Judaic tradition has literally been torn apart. It's done. It's been rent. In particular, this whole self-righteous Pharisee thing that they've got going on right now where they kind of exclude God, exclude the cross, just focus on us and making ourselves feel happy that we're good and happy religious folk and we're all zealous about all this. That he is saying, done, torn, done. We're gone. We're, it's done. My power of my death without me ever doing anything to it, the power of my death, the power of my cross has rent this whole self-righteous Judaism thing apart. It will no longer be the institution that, has, that carries the name of God. Going forward, it's going to be Jesus and his kingdom. And that's it. And what was Judaic and what was Gentile is joined together and all can equally access God through the cross of Jesus Christ.
That is a powerful institution that has been shaken. Thousands of years worth of history. In fact, the whole testament going up to Matthew. Shaken by this one moment. The other thing that was shaken is creation itself. The creator, the word that was spoken in the beginning has died. Now we know obviously his eternal side of things never died but the creator who was physically present in this world who would make statements like peace be still and the creation itself would stop who would be able to look and say these rocks another part of the creation will cry out in honor towards me because they know who i am the rocks the inanimate objects on the ground if you try to withhold the praise from me these rocks will reach up and praise me because they know their creator is walking on them right now okay so when he dies and gives up the ghost the earth itself the creation itself can't handle what has just happened and so it starts shaking violently mountains are collapsing and tearing i mean that's just, this is the picture you get this cataclysmic event within the creation itself That is the power of Jesus' death. His death is able to shake the very foundations of the world. It had a powerful effect on everything. Now, the next scene that we see is where you come to the next day. That's called the day after the preparation. And look, we have gone through this and talked about this multiple times. You have, there, there are two camps that you can divide this into, okay? There is a camp that believed Jesus Christ was crucified on Friday, was in the tomb Friday night, Saturday night, came out Sunday morning, okay? The other camp is that there was, that the timing of when he says by the prophecy that I'll be in the whale's belly, or that Jonah was in the whale's belly three days, three nights, I'll be in the belly of the earth three days, three nights. We take that back and we push it back to like Thursday or Wednesday, okay? And we've gone back through this and we've talked about this this whole time. I fall in a camp that feels a little bit more like one thing. Some people else may feel like it's in another. I tried to tell you it doesn't necessarily matter, okay? Because what matters is that Jesus died, he was put in a tomb, and he came out of that tomb, okay? We can argue about days if you want to. I take it when it talks about here being the day after the preparation, we're talking about Saturday, which is the Sabbath, because traditionally in this, when it talks about a preparation day, it's talking about Friday, People have disagreements with that. Perfectly fine. I don't really care to argue about it. Okay. But that's where I'm going to say they came on Saturday, the next day, and they went to G. I mean, they went to Pilate and they said, we need a guard. Okay. We need you to set a seal on the tomb because his disciples are going to come and they're going to try to steal his body and say that he's going to rise. Okay. Now, the seal that the governor was to put on there was like a seal, like a, you know, wax seal that they would stick on it. And if you broke that, you died. Okay, that was kind of the deal. You didn't get to do that. It was a very serious thing. The Romans brought in law and order in a lot of the places that they went into. And that was kind of one of those things. There were some very severe punishments for doing things like, you know, breaking a wax seal. But that's what is set up here. The Pharisees, as I said, lose all their credibility because... They're going to continue to try to keep this narrative going. They're going to continue to spin webs and layers of deceit to try to keep it going that they're realizing their power is coming to an end. Here's the other thing. If you didn't really believe that Jesus and what he was doing was going to have some kind of effect, you wouldn't go to these ends. They're scared is what they are. 
They're scared that Jesus is actually going to do what he has continued to do in his entire existence, which has proved them utterly wrong. Okay, And they're scared that Jesus is actually going to come out of that tomb. And they're thinking that maybe if we can spin this thing with the seal and all that, we'll be able to lie our ways out of it like we see they ultimately do. But they're scared is what it is. They're afraid Jesus is going to prove them wrong one more time. They're afraid that they're going to lose their power and their status to this uppity man from Nazareth. So they go to these links of putting the seal on the door. Now, I will say that in just a correlation, if you want kind of a historical aspect to all this... um, About the days of the week, because, you know, we wonder, you know, why did we start meeting on Sunday mornings instead of Friday nights? Okay, because Friday and Saturday were the Sabbath day. Sunday morning was not. Why did we start meeting on Sunday morning? Well, the reason is, is because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. Okay, in the morning. That's what we say. Okay, and so that has been that way traditionally for you, really the existence of the church. So there's an account. There's not a lot of writings or historical accounts that you have other than um, Josephus you know, in those coming into 70 AD, 80 AD, 90 AD, those kind of times. You do have, as we mentioned on Wednesday night a few weeks back, Justin the Martyr, who um, he wrote around the time of 150. Okay, so we are a little ways away from Jesus, all right? But we're not necessarily that far into the church, okay? 150 AD is actually pretty early on in this whole church thing. Remember, John is still writing Isle of Patmos like 90 AD, okay? So Justin the Martyr is writing in this kind of first, second century time, and he writes about the assembly of the church. And in that he says, but Sunday is the day on which we all hold our common assembly because it is the first day on which God, having wrought a change in the darkness and matter, love that, made the world, okay? So we get the correlation. God started the creation of the world when? First day of the week. Made the change, wrought a change in the darkness and matter, made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day, rose from the dead. For he was crucified on the day before that of Saturn, or Saturday, that would be Friday. And on the day after that of Saturn, which is the day of the sun, Sunday, having appeared to his apostles and disciples, he taught them these things, which we have submitted to you also for your consideration. So that's the, that's kind of the layout that at least in that kind of first and second century, that was their explanation of why they did what they did. Okay. There's also a thing that he rose on the third day. Okay. Even though we will talk about being three days and three nights, he didn't rise on the fourth day. He rose on the third day, on the third day, okay? Um, Which would be, again, this is the Sunday kind of narrative that we give. But again, what we were kind of getting at is what matters is that it happened, okay? That's what matters. As we've gone through all these different things, I try to get you to get back to what matters. This is what matters, is that it happened, He rose from the dead just as Jesus, God, the prophets all said it would. It did. He rose from the dead. And these Jews were so scared about Jesus actually living up to his reputation of honesty that he would do it and break forth on the third day. They got scared and they decided, hey, we need to do something about this and try to hedge our bets. So that's what we see in this last scene is you have them making the sepulcher secure or making the tomb secure until the third day. Now we go into chapter 28. 
In the end of the Sabbath, that would be coming into Sunday morning, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week. And again, this is another thing that you have to, we, we have to correlate. You're talking about Western. We talked about this way when we started this seven, six week, I mean, six days of the week thing that we started so long ago. You have a Western writing. You have a Roman Latin accounting of days mixed with Jewish tradition of evening and night. The end of the Sabbath was Saturday at, at sunset, not Sunday morning. Sabbath had way ended by Sunday morning. Okay. Here it says, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Again, this Mary, who you would presume would be Mary, the mother of Joseph, the wife of Cleopas, or Zebedee's, whoever this Mary is, this is the other Mary. She's affectionately known as the other Mary for the rest of her existence. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat upon it. His countenance was like lightning and his raiment white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers, that would be those Roman guards, did shake and become as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, fear not, for I know that you seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, I have told you. And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy and did run to bring his disciples word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, all hail. And they came and held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then said Jesus to them, be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there shall they see me. Now, when they were going, behold, some of the watch came into the city and showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. And when they were assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave large money unto the soldiers, saying, You will say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this come to the governor's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So they took the money and did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews to this day. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And we know from other accounts, that's Thomas. And Jesus came and spoke to him, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Amen. Now, this scene that is set... Again, you have the faithful women going back to the tomb. One of my most favorite statements in the Bible, and I know I've probably said that so many times that my most favorite has ended up, you know, changing hands a lot of times. But one of my most favorite statements in the Bible is when the angel is speaking to them and says, Fear not, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. I love that past tense. I love when you're describing something as monumental as the crucifixion of the Son of God and the resurrection. And you're like, oh, he was crucified, but he isn't anymore. He's raised from the dead. He was crucified. 
I love it even more because then when you start reading in the epistles and when you start having Paul and others bring up and talk about us, and he says, and some of you were drunkards and some of you were deceivers and some of you were prostitutes and some of you were drug dealers and fornicators and all these other things. Some of you, all of you, all of us were these things. But guess what? We were crucified with Jesus Christ and now... You are saved, redeemed, sanctified, washed, and made new. The past tense is so beautiful. You were. In fact, don't kid yourselves. You know you were. Don't pretend like you weren't. Don't pretend like you weren't all these things. That also gives us a lot of reassurance about who makes up the church. Lots of people who had really broken up pasts, okay? So when you try to look at the church and say, oh, you were a bunch of really good-looking, awesome people, and you've never done anything wrong, and Jesus saved you because you were just so awesome. Eh, wrong. You were a bunch of prostitute, drug-dealing, broken people, and Jesus still saved you, and now made you who you are. Well, Jesus was crucified, but now he's raised from the dead. And then he tells them, go back and tell the disciples, hey, I'm going before you into Galilee like I told you I would. The first proclaimers of the gospel were these women who met Jesus at the tomb. They went back to the disciples and proclaimed to the disciples, Jesus has risen from the dead. We talked about before how when you see the first people who preached the gospel of Jesus' birth were who? Not the disciples. They weren't there yet. Not the religious elite. Not the Pharisees. Not the Sadducees. Not the Sanhedrin. None of those people. The first people to proclaim the gospel that Jesus, the Son of God, our Savior, had been born into this world. Emmanuel dwelling with us was the beaten, broken up shepherds out in the middle of the field. They're the ones who the angels appeared to and said, go and tell everybody peace and joy because Jesus has arrived. Again, a class of people who would not be your most reliable source to use. But here again, you have these women who are put in the forefront as being the first ones to do this. So again, you see their faithfulness that they were there. You also see how they are faithfully recorded as those who proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The time frame that you have here, and again, this is consolidating from different books of the Bible, from the Synoptic Gospels and from the Gospel of John. But you have that he appears, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene at the tomb, and that's in John chapter 20 where he's talk, she's talking to whom she perceives to be the gardener and he reveals himself, and then we have that conversation. Then he walks with the apostles as they're heading out going to the road to Emmaus. There was two apostles um, that were heading to Emmaus, which is on your way back up the west side going up to Nazareth and Galilee. And so he appeared to them in Luke chapter 24, starts talking to them. By the end of it, they're like, oh, that was Jesus. And they run back to Jerusalem. Okay, this is all happening on Sunday. It was a very busy Sunday. He appears to the disciples in Jerusalem. That's when he goes through the door and the door is locked. And, you know, they're all hanging out there worried about getting killed. And Jesus pops in and tells them what's going to go on in the future. He appears to Peter and others at the Sea of Tiberias, which is the western border of the Sea of Galilee. So now we're back up into Galilee. And then he finally appears to 500 disciples in the mountain in Galilee where they were commanded to meet him. Okay, And that's kind of the timeline of that goes on with this post-resurrection scene from Sunday to subsequent days. Okay, But what's important out of this that we grab as we close? Just like we talked about the power of his death 
I do think we'll all agree there's a lot of power in his resurrection. Amen? So the power of the resurrection, we saw that in the power of his death, he shook the powers or the structures of religion and creation, which are pretty huge. Okay? There's one, though, that's even maybe bigger than that. Okay? One that has held sway on every living thing since Genesis 3, and that is the power of death. With his resurrection, it says, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints which slept arose and came out of their graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, guys, I have no depth on that. I have no clarification on that. It wigs me out a little bit and I don't know exactly what is it, what we're getting at, but it happened just by his being raised from the dead. The grave just boom. Okay, you know what that is? That's Jesus in the Sea of Galilee going, peace be stilled, and all the creation just going, done. It didn't like churn down. It's not like the hurricane spun itself out or whatever. It was just done, okay? It's like Jesus looking at Lazarus and saying, Lazarus, come forth. And guess what? Undead. He did. Okay. He just popped right up. There was no timing. There was no magical incantation. He didn't have to do any juju over him or anything else. It just happened. Okay. Here, Jesus doesn't even speak. He just quits being dead. God, the father, through his power, raised up his son from the dead. And in that act of reversing death, he reversed death for hundreds of people who came out of the grave and went out into the city and started ministering to people. And again, you're walking around the scene going, was that Uncle Billy? Did he die last year? How, what is going on here? What is Tommy doing? I thought he was dead. I went to his funeral. And all Jesus did was just quit being dead. Death as an institution that is unstoppable and has been in existence since the beginning of humanity is now destroyed. That ultimate finite power that controls our destiny is instantaneously undone. Where Christ can look at Lazarus, Christ can look at the widow's son. Christ can hear, be raised up, and the same power that raised Jesus all of a sudden is busting graves open, and they're raising too. And the same power that's going to raise us from the dead one day is constantly throwing in the face of death that it has no more ultimate power anymore. It doesn't control us. If we die... We will be raised again. If we die, we live on. It's not terminal. We, we go on in existence. And even if we don't die, but the Lord comes back, it's done then too. In fact, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15, that talks about the resurrection. It will say, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Destroyed, which means it is obliterated. It goes on to say, death is swallowed up. In victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? It's gone. It's done away with. 
It has no more victory. Why? Because Jesus quit being dead. He was resurrected by the power of God and in that undid the ultimate definitive power of death over all of us. Jesus says, I am the creator. I am the alpha and the omega. I'm the one that can say to death, you're no longer going to have dominion in this world. And in that grand and marvelous resurrection day, that will be done with. That should give us all such hope when we talk about death and the passing of loved ones and we talk about how this, how this affects our lives and we talk about how in heaven and in the world to come, whatever it may be, that we look at the hope of the fact that we are going to be reunited with the ones that we've loved and lived here with in this world to live eternally with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit forever and that we will never die again. That is a sweet hope. Amen. Death is not a fun thing. Nobody likes to die. In fact, 100% of people polled about death said they don't like dying. Okay? Statistically a fact. Okay? So it's a, pres- it's a continuation of the victory of Jesus Christ. It's not just satisfying a law-based thing. It's not just atoning for sin. It's not even just making peace and unity. It is complete and total obliteration of everything we messed up in this world. We broke the world. We brought death in. And Jesus is saying, yes, and I'm going to take every bit of that away. And because I'm such a gracious and awesome savior, I'm actually going to recreate a new heavens and a new earth and let you live there in perfection. For eternity. That's how awesome I am. We also find in the resurrection that the resurrection gives us identity. Okay. So Paul makes a statement again, going back to first Corinthians 15 in the, uh, in verse 10, he says, but by the, as he talked about how he persecuted the church and he'd done all these things and all these bad, you know, all this stuff, Paul was a murderer. Okay. Of the church. That's who he was. He says, but By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, which was bestowed on me, was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God, which is within me. Therefore, whether it were I or they, so we preach and so ye believe. This is in the chapter as he'd been talking about the resurrection. He is describing that, yes, it's the grace of God, but it is the power of the resurrection and this new life thing that Christ gives us in the resurrection that he's saying, I am who I am. I have been remade. By the power of God, through the death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave, I am who I am. That the resurrection has given me this identity, this new birth identity that I did not have before. In fact, before, I was a murderer, was a murderer. Now, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. So if you're looking at your life saying, well, who am I and where is my identity? Then I'm going to tell you that believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done would give you the perspective of having an identity that is bound up within his resurrection. That because of his resurrection, you are who you are. I am who I am, which means I'm no longer those past tense people we referenced before. 
I am a newly made child of God. Living in the power of his resurrection. By the grace of God, I am who I am. You are who you are. There is nothing that you can put up and say, oh, well, there's just, I can't get past this. There's something in my life I can't overcome. There's a mountain here I can't remove, whatever it may be. The power of the resurrection says there is no unstoppable that can stop you from the cross. There is no mountain that was not broken by his death. And there is no unchangeable that was not changed and removed and destroyed by his resurrection. The power of the resurrection has given you identity. It gives us purpose of what we are here to do with Darwinian evolution. We have nothing. There's nothing to live for. There's no purpose in life. You just, in fact, Paul also talks about that in, in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead rise not, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Nothing to live for. If in this life only we have hope in Jesus Christ, we're of all men most miserable. Why? Because there's nothing to live for. There's nothing past this. So the resurrection and the fact that we live on beyond this and that Christ lived on beyond this gives us hope that we're going to live on beyond this and that that's not all there is in this world. It also gives us a purpose. It's not eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die because guess what? Death is not going to stop you. It's not the end. So the resurrection gives us purpose in our lives. It gives us hope about the life to come and the life that we have here. And it gives us identity. I want to close by reading the lyrics of this song that I really, really love. Um, called Death is Arrested. It's a great song. You should like look it up on iTunes. And it goes like this. Alone in my sorrow and dead in my sin, lost without hope and with no place to begin, your love made a way to let mercy come in when death was arrested and my life began. Ash was redeemed, only beauty remains. My orphan heart was given a new name. My morning grew quiet, my feet rose to dance when death was arrested and my life began. Released from my chains, I'm a prisoner no more. My shame was a ransom he faithfully bore. He canceled my debt and he called me his friend when death was arrested and my life began. Our Savior displayed on a criminal's cross. Darkness rejoiced as though heaven had lost. But when Jesus arose with our freedom in hand, that's when death was arrested and my life began. Remember, I'm not going to finish it. Remember that the power of the cross, the power of his resurrection has made us who we are, has made you who you are. And that there is nothing, as Romans 8 would tell us, that can separate us or interfere in our lives to keep us from that reality. The, your worst enemy is yourself. Thinking that your sins have not been atoned for on the cross thinking that you do not have peace with God from the cross, thinking that there are things in this world that just can't be overcome. There's things in my life, there's sins in my life, there's problems in my life, there's issues in my life that just can't be overcome. That is your own worst enemy. Because what the power of the cross and the resurrection would tell us is that if death can be overcome, your anger issue, you, your love issue, your 
relationship issue, your what selfishness issue, whatever it is, all of that is very trivial. If Christ can defeat death, then the power of God can defeat anything in your life. So let us remember what power we have in Jesus Christ, his cross and his resurrection. We will close next time with the Great Commission. May God bless us to work on this.